We were in Luke chapter 5 today. <clears throat> As Brittany mentioned, we're talking about uh, Jesus and the disciples and um, some kind of crazy things that he asked them to do and the results. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and seeing all that God has for us. And uh, I put this in the study guide, and I would just uh, mention it now as well if, uh, if you're interested, but um, you may want to, at some point, buy a Harmony of the Gospels, and if you don't own one or you don't want to put out the money for that, it's probably 20 bucks to get one. Uh, there's plenty of them online, but I encourage you as we go through Luke to be reading a Harmony of the Gospels. It kind of puts them chronologically uh, side by side, so you kind of get an idea of when things took place or how they, they weave together, because oftentimes the Gospels seem redundant, and it's hard to know when they're talking about the same thing or when they're talking about something different and what preceded what, and it just helps put it all in context. And I'll talk a little bit about that today, but let's dive into our chapter. Luke 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats on the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and we didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both nets were filled with fish on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, O Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. And soon, as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. There's a lot packed in these 11 verses, and I want to talk about three things today on the outline if you're taking notes, but just by way of introduction and, and kind of in keeping with what I said about the harmony of the Gospels, as you, maybe sometimes you've wondered, what prior encounters with Jesus did the disciples have? Because if you're reading Matthew or Mark, it's kind of like Jesus is walking by the water, and he sees them fishing with their father, and says, hey, follow me. And they drop everything and follow him. And you're thinking, wow, that's some authority that on first take, they, they just follow him. Many theologians and scholars believe that what Matthew and Mark talk about, and there is actually this story right here, just condensed, like Luke is giving us more of that than Matthew and Mark do. So that's, that's up for opinion, but you know, and not, not a hill to die on, but that's interesting. But if you go to the Gospel of John chapter 1, you find out that Andrew and John were Disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a lot of disciples as he was out in the wilderness and by the Jordan River baptizing people and preparing the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. 
And one day, as they're following John the Baptist, John sees Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the guy. That's the one that I've been talking about. That's the one I've been preaching about. And Andrew and John leave John the Baptist and start following Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful handoffs, one of the most beautiful leadership handoffs in all of history and all of Scripture because of John's humility. You know, how many times as leaders does it become somewhere along, maybe you start out with good motives, good motivation, but somewhere along the way it becomes about you, your own personal glory, your own personal following, how many people are following me, how many people are listening to me, how many people are, you know, supporting me. But John really knew that it was never about him. It was about his earthly cousin, Jesus. And it was about preparing the way. And so when he sees Jesus, he goes, that's the guy. And his disciples, because they had been well-trained and well-equipped, they left him and they started following Jesus. And in John chapter 1, we read that one of the very first things that Andrew does is he goes and gets his brother Peter. And he says, we found him. We found the one who's called the Messiah. And Peter comes, and that's Peter's first encounter with Jesus. So we know that that definitely preceded um, our story today. Last week in our passage in Luke chapter 4, we read how Jesus was at the synagogue in Capernaum, and while he was teaching, there was a demon-possessed man who cried out, and Jesus basically said, be quiet and come out of him. And Jesus cast the demon out of the man. The guy fell to the floor, but he was unhurt, unharmed. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, when they leave the synagogue, it says, and they left the synagogue and they went to the home of Peter and Andrew. And when you're reading about who was at the home, it was Peter and Andrew and James and John. So we know that at least these four disciples were with Jesus in the synagogue when he cast out the demon before he went to Peter and Andrew's house and, and healed Peter's mother-in-law of the high fever that she had. So you're kind of compiling this, that, okay, John chapter 1, you know, they're following John the Baptist, and they follow Jesus, and they realize, oh, here's the Messiah, start following Jesus, and Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and then they're at the synagogue in Capernaum and see this exorcism take place, and... Then, as I said, Peter's mother-in-law gets healed, and immediately the indication that she's healed is she gets up out of the bed where she's been laid out flat, and she begins serving them again and waiting upon them and bringing them food. And now this week, the amazing catch of fish, um, all upon or followed by simple or preceded by simple obedience. So there's a few encounters that Peter and the disciples have had with Jesus before our experience today, and you kind of miss that as you're just reading singular Gospels and not fully aware of what took place before that. And I believe in our passage today, there's at least three things that stand out that teach us about what it means to go deeper, what it means to go deep in our relationship with the Lord. I love it when, when Jesus says to, to Peter, push out deeper, push out deeper. What would it mean for Jesus right now today to take you aside and, and what area of your life would he say, you know what, I want to take you deeper. You know, you've been really satisfied in this one area or this one level for a long time and you're, you're just getting stagnant. You know, you're just getting complacent. 
you're okay with this, and I want to take you deeper. We're going to talk about what that means. And the first thing that I see, the first kind of point, number one, I believe that going deeper means continuing after we're done. Continuing after we're done. You can put that any way you want. Persevering after we're done. And what do we mean by done? I mean those times in life where we feel physically exhausted, where we feel emotionally drained, where we feel spiritually depleted. Those times, you said it, where I'm like, I'm done. I am so done. You know, I was done a week ago. I was done an hour ago. I was done a year ago. I am so done. You know, and you know what that area or those areas of your life are. And time and time again in Scripture, it seems at the very point where people are done, God starts working. And I think it's a combination of things. That The more I study it, I believe it's at those precise moments that the enemy is attacking you. And he's attacking me and he's wanting to ravage us. He's wanting to destroy us. But those are the very same times that God comes in and says, he means it for evil, but I mean it for good. I am the one who can work all things together for good. I am the one who can do the impossible. And so as we mature as as Christ followers, I believe it's precisely in the moments of crisis and trial and hard times when we're tempted to go, oh my gosh, seriously? I'm done, that we need to lift our eyes up and say, okay, God, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. You must be doing something here because you're sovereign. You're aware of this. You know the beginning from the end. You say in Scripture that you won't push me beyond what I'm able, but you'll provide a way of escape or you'll provide the strength to endure it. And so the older I get and the more mature I get and hopefully the more you grow in the Lord, Instead of just like responding as a world would respond, like seriously and belly aching and griping and moaning, going, okay, something's going on here, you know? And then moments of crisis and, and challenge start becoming exciting because you're like, okay, God is on the move. Something's going on. And I am not going to let the enemy win. I'm going to hang in here. So it means continuing after we're done. Verses 1 and 2, one day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God, and he noticed two empty boats on the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Washing their nets meant they were done. They fished all night. They were tired. They caught nothing. They wanted to just be done with it all. They wanted to forget about the whole experience. They wanted to get home and go to sleep and rejoin their families and hope that nobody said, hey, how much did you catch? Because this wasn't their hobby, this was their living, you know? How much money did you make this last year? Uh, nothing, you know? That's not something you're really proud of that you want to tell other people, you know? As you're comparing careers and success, you know, when you have a story that's pretty much, that's not the kind of thing you want to share. These guys were done. They wanted to be over with it. One of my first full-time jobs in high school, actually my first legitimate full-time job was with Baskin Robbins, 31 Flavors. And um, that's when I first became a night owl because we closed at 11 o'clock 
on the weekdays and midnight on the weekends. And it took at least a whole other hour after we closed to clean everything up. And I can't tell you how many times I had mopped the floor, cleaned the shake machines, you know, cleaned the windows and all that. And it would be a Friday night. And I remember one time in particular when DP, Dos Pueblos, which was our enemy because I went to San Marcos, the whole football team came in at like 10.45. No, actually it would have been 11.45 because it was a Friday night after the game. And they're all hopped up and they're all wanting shakes and banana splits and all the stuff that's messy and causes a huge mess. And we had just cleaned everything. And it's like 15 minutes until we close. And not only did they order this whole slew of food, but then they got in this massive like food fight, and they were just, I think they were high or drunk or something, but they're throwing it over the windows and here and there. And, you know, I had one other worker with me, and yeah, I was a big guy, and I worked out, but I'm not taking on a whole football team and telling them, like, this is not cool. Knock it off, you know. So it's pretty much like, great, you know. And I, I was done. You know, I was ready to go home, I was tired, I had homework, I had stuff to do, and you've had those times where you're like, seriously, God, why are you allowing this? What's going on? You know, and sometimes there is no point. It doesn't make sense. Look at Mark chapter 6 with me. Turn back to Mark 6 if you would. I want you to remember the context of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000, which is recorded in... I think at least three of the Gospels, if not all of them, top of my head. The, the, the context of that is right before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had sent the disciples out, Mark chapter 12, uh, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 6, in verse 7 to 13, Jesus is sending the disciples out to teach and to preach and to heal people and to cast out demons. He's been preparing them, kind of modeling for them what ministry is about, and so he sends them out to do this. And then after that, it tells us about how John the Baptist is beheaded at the hands of King Herod. And so after that, in John, and keep saying John, Mark chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus said, let's get away. Let's get away to a quiet and lonely place. So Jesus is bummed because his cousin's just been killed. He's got a heavy heart. The disciples are excited because they've just seen demons exercised and people respond to the gospel, and they can't wait to tell Jesus all about everything that's going on and all that they accomplished, and they get off to a quiet and lonely place, and the crowds follow them. And the disciples are thinking from the get-go, get out of here. This is our time. You know, we've been ministering all day long, and we want to share with our rabbi, our master, all that's gone on, Jesus is certainly thinking in his humanity, hey, I need a break. My cousin's just died, and you know I'm a little down. But the, the people come in, and it says that Jesus welcomes them, and he teaches them all day long. And it's not until the evening that the disciples are like, okay, we're in a quiet and lonely and desolate place, and we haven't had anything to eat all day. The crowds have had their turn. Now send them away. Are you kidding me? Like, I don't even want to be around these people, much less feed them. But that's when God does something amazing. That's when he feeds 5,000, which we think is more like 20 or 25,000, because in those days they didn't count the women and children. It's 5,000 men. And then right after that, if you skip ahead, 
Jesus sends the disciples out across the lake, verse 45 of Mark 6, while he kind of hangs back. And while the disciples are out in the middle of the lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret, Sea of Tiberias, it's all the same thing. It's called at least four different things in the New Testament. They encounter a huge storm, and the wind is blowing, and they're struggling at the oars. And it says in verse 48 of Mark 6, it's about the fourth watch of the night which is between 3 and 6 in the morning. The Sea of Galilee, folks, is not a huge lake. I mean, it's big. It's bigger than a lot of lakes, but I mean, like, even Lake Tahoe is bigger than the Sea of Galilee. And so they've been struggling to get across the lake all night long. I mean, assuming Jesus sent the crowds away around as it was getting dark just after dinner, they've been out there a long time. And this is where Jesus walks out on the water and kind of passes them, and they, they see him still the waters, and they're like, man, who is this guy? Verse 53, they cross over and they come to the land of Gennesaret, and they moored there on the shore. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, and they ran about the whole country and began to carry on their pallets, those who were sick, to the place that they heard he was. It just never ends. It keeps going and going. They've gone at least two days straight of doing ministry, and they're wanting a break. They're wanting some time to share and reflect. And Jesus and his humanity had to want that as well. Yeah, he was God, but here's what I see going on. Satan is trying to get Jesus to snap. He's trying to get Jesus to say, okay, enough. Forget this. This is crazy. I didn't sign up for this. And the disciples are already there. They've already said that verbally and in their heads. But it's precisely when we feel done that God does stuff. And you can read throughout Scripture and time and time again, you're going to find it's when people are at the edge and the breaking point that God starts doing something miraculous. And so we can either see that as, you know, what, what in the world? Or we can start opening our eyes and say, okay, this is just too ridiculous. Something must be going on. Something must be going on. What is it for you today? Maybe, maybe the place in your life where you're done is work. Like you don't think you can work another day at, at the job that you're at. You know, it's, it's a way to pay the bills, but you hate it. It doesn't use your gifts and your passions, and you're done. Maybe there's a relationship that you're in where you're just like, I am so done. I have I've tried, I've prayed, and nothing changes you know, maybe, maybe it's parenting. <laughs> you know, you're like, I've tried to raise, you know, kids that love the Lord and honor Him and make good choices, and it just doesn't seem to be sticking. Maybe it's caregiving. Maybe you're at that point of life where many of us are at, where now your parents are getting old, and just one crisis after another, and you're thinking, I can't take it anymore. All of us have something in our life where we feel done. And it's one thing to read it in Scripture and go, okay, yeah, you know, the disciples should have done this. <laughs> it's another thing to say, are we willing? Are we willing to trust the Lord in the midst of our brick wall, in the midst of our impasse, where we just feel like, you know? I, I remember as a young boy reading the book of Job, and one of the verses that stood out to me, and it's been ingrained in my mind to this day, it, so much so that I know the reference, and I don't know a lot of references in Job, but Job 
Job says, for he, meaning God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job, you know, if anything happened, if anything rained down on a person, it was Job. And Job saw that experience as God is testing me right now. He created me. He knows me. He knows what I can take. And when he has tried me, I will come out of that refiner's fire as gold. He saw it as a refiner's fire experience. And the question is whether you and I will see our times of trial and crisis as um, a time where Satan is having his, his way and you know, God is just cruel and doesn't care, or as a time when God may be allowing things, but he's doing something miraculous. Point number two, I believe going deeper means obeying God even when it doesn't make sense. Obeying God even when it doesn't make sense. And if you haven't experienced this already, may I say that obeying God seldom does make sense. You know, we have finite minds. God is infinite. For us to expect an infinite God to make sense to finite human beings is is ludicrous. Seldom does God make sense. But we're called to obey Him even when it doesn't make sense. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're given all of this beautiful paradise and yet there's one tree that they're not supposed to touch. Why? You know? And Satan got them to focus on the why. Not on all the other blessings, but yeah, why is that? You know, is he hiding something? Is he keeping something? Is he withholding special powers? You know, why? I, I even asked that, you know, why did God not just create the garden without that tree? You know? Abraham and Sarah are barren. They can't have children. In their old age, God finally provides a son, Isaac. And then soon after that, God calls Abraham to to kill his son. This isn't like, you know, one son out of 12. This is his only son. This is, and then God made the promise to him, you know, I will increase your descendants like the sand of the seashore. This is his ticket to fulfilling that promise. He knows no other earthly way that God is going to fulfill that promise except through his son. And now God is asking him to sacrifice that very son. That does not make sense. That takes faith. Joshua, you know, march around Jericho for six days, and on the seventh day, when you march around, blow horns. Oh yeah, sure, you know. Jericho is this huge fortified city. Let's just blow horns like, here we are, kill us, shoot the arrows over the wall, you know, dump tar on us, whatever they did in that day. Like, you know, if you didn't see us, here we are, we're blowing horns, we're sitting ducks. That makes no sense, God. Elijah, you know, yeah, let's call all the prophets of Baal together and let's have a standoff and let's see whose God answers and, oh yeah, on top of that, let's pour water on the sacrifice. Because if, if fire is going to come down from heaven, water will really help the wood to catch on fire. Like, what? God, are you kidding me? Like, I'm hoping you show up and now you want me to pour water on it? Gideon, fighting, fighting the enemy. Okay, I got an army of 32,000 and you're asking me to reduce it? I go from 32,000 people to 300 because you say 32,000 is too many for the victory, that if, if we get the victory with 32,000, then they'll get headstrong and think it was them. 
Well, the army far outnumbers even the 32,000. 300 is suicide. Really, God? Hosea. Hey, Hosea, you're God-honoring and God-fearing. You're a good prophet. I want you to go marry a prostitute. Really? Like, where in Scripture do I support that? You know? And then today, you've been fishing all day, and, oh, you, you know, just go, go a little bit deeper, and you'll catch stuff. You're like, really? You know, time and time again, God asks people to do things that don't make sense. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I had broken my arm. And in Santa Barbara, uh, we lived on Old San Marcos Road, which, if you're familiar, we're, we're in and out Burger is in Santa Barbara. That's Calle Real. If you go a little bit north, it connects with Old San Marcos Road. Old San Marcos Road connects with Old San Marcos Pass, which takes you up and connects with Highway 154, right where Painted Cave is. That's where I grew up, and right next door to my house was a huge open park. The whole park was a huge hill, and it wasn't a park with swings and play equipment, but it was a park with every fruit tree imaginable and just kind of this overgrown wooded park that Abraham Lincoln had given to two settlers in the 1800s, and you could see the remains of the houses. It was like a fantasy land for kids to build forts and to play and Every night, my family would take a walk up there for about a half an hour, and I remember one time, with my broken arm, I'm pushing my bike, and it just occurred to me right now, why was I pushing my bike? Well, I was pushing my bike because my mom was a nurse, and she said, you're not riding that bike. The doctor said, you can't ride the bike till the cast comes off, and I'm like, that's stupid, Mom. Everybody knows doctors go overboard and tell you, you the cast is coming off in a few days. I'm riding my bike. And I don't know to this day why my dad didn't just say, leave the bike at home, okay? Knock it off. But as I remember, I pushed that bike for a half an hour, which shows how rebellious I was, until the very end of our walk where there was a hill that went down in, in our house. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I am finally riding my bike. I pushed this thing for 30 minutes. I'm riding my bike. And my mom's like, you're not, you know? Don't be disobedient. And the minute I'm going to get on my bike, there's a huge eucalyptus tree in front of us, and a branch breaks, which, no lie, spanned the, the, the width of this sanctuary and was massive. And it came crashing down right in front. We couldn't even walk down the path. It just completely blocked and it occurred to me, had I been on my bike, I would have been under that right when it fell. And that was the first time in my life that God's like, listen to your mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> Even when it doesn't make sense, listen. And it, it stands out. You know, many of you might have been with Brittany and I and others uh, Friday night downtown to hear Jamie Winship. Jamie Winship was telling story after story, and there's Two stories that he told that are too long to get into right now, but of a Palestinian guy trying to get his license in Israel because he can't have a job without being able to drive, and yet he can't get a license because he's Palestinian, and they wait in line all day long only to be turned down or stand in a line that never moves. And they, they pay somebody to wait in line for them so that they can leave their job at the precise moment and go get in line, but then they end up lo losing their job because they go wait in line. And so getting a license was impossible, but the, Jamie prayed with this guy, and the guy ended up getting a license and starting to believe. 
And then Jamie's working with this guy, trying to help him to realize his identity in the Lord. And the guy feels like the Lord says to him, I will reveal your identity to you in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Which, if you're familiar, that's a church where really the site of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. The site. But he can't go in there because he's Palestinian. He's not allowed in there. And so there's this long story of how he, he gets a taxi guy to take him as far as he can go with, and he ventures in, and he gets stopped by a number of officers. and stuff. It's just crazy, but he makes his way in there, and God reveals himself to him. So this guy is doing thing after thing that doesn't make sense, but God is just doing miracles and stuff in the midst of that. And the question that I would have for myself and for you is, when's the last time that you did something that didn't make sense because that's where obedience led you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says that that faith is is seeing what you can't see. It's believing what you can't see. And it's trusting God in your limited knowledge that he might have purposes and plans that exceed our capacity to understand. And so when things in life get crazy and seem ridiculous, and we know that Satan's up to something, we also have to believe that God is up to something. And will we hang in there and trust and be obedient even when things don't make sense? Point number three is simple. It's being willing to go places we don't normally go. Being willing to go places we don't normally go. And I'm not just talking physically or geographically. I'm saying go, go places emotionally, spiritually, relationally, wherever it is. Basically, are we willing to go outside of our comfort zone, places we don't normally go? For the disciples, this meant going out on the lake that they went into all the time, but they never went out in the middle of the day. Because as fishers, fishermen, it didn't make sense. It was a well-known fact that the Sea of Galilee, you caught fish at night in the shallow water, not in the daytime in the deep water. You caught fish at night in the shallow water, not during the day in the deep water. So they fished this lake all the time, but they had never been out in the middle of the lake in the middle of the day, because that didn't make sense. So when Jesus asked Peter to do what was contrary to all of his training and experience, he could have said, I'm the fisherman. I don't think, you know, as a rabbi, you know what you're talking about. But he obeyed. And had Peter not obeyed, he wouldn't have been part of this huge miracle. An insignificant, seemingly insignificant command that he obeys, and then he sees Jesus perform a miracle. The first time I ever went outside of my comfort zone to a place that I had never been before was Mexico. I went as a seventh grader with my youth group in Santa Barbara to Tijuana. My folks were terrified. None of us had ever been to Mexico. And um, I went with our youth pastor and our youth group, and we went with a guy named Von Truxler. And I am coming to understand that this guy is a legend, a legend. I just found out as I was on the internet this week, he died three years ago at the age of 87. And he had been doing ministry to Mexico since the early 40s. So for 70 years, he did ministry. And I just have a two-minute clip of what I want to... I came across Francis Chan, and Francis Chan is talking about Vaughn. Listen to what he has to say, and I'm going to tie it in. You know, one last thought. I, 
I had this guy speak at my church one time, Brad Buser, who was a missionary to Papua New Guinea for 20-something years. And at the end of his message, he said, I owe it all to my youth pastor, Vaughn. I thought, oh, that's really cool. His youth pastor had an impact on him. The next week, we had a guy who was talking about caring for the orphans in the world. And when he was done, he said, you know, I owe it all to my youth pastor, Vaughn. Same guy. I thought, wow, that's crazy. Next week, third week in a row, I bring another guy in from the rescue mission downtown L.A. He didn't mention Vaughn. But afterwards, I go, you know what was really weird? I go, the last two guys, they both were in the same youth group, and they mentioned this guy, Vaughn. And Dan looks at me, he goes, I know Vaughn. I go, seriously? He goes, yeah. And here's what he said. He goes, Vaughn is this pastor who takes people into the dumps of Tijuana. And he goes, I spent a day with him. And, and we would go into these dumps where, where, where people are just digging out of the trash, eating whatever they could. And he would come into the village, and, and these kids would come running to him, and he would just hug them and clean them up. And he'd have food for them. He'd have gifts for them. And, and he goes, and I was walking with him. And he goes, walking with Vaughn was very strange. He goes, I had this eerie feeling the whole time. He goes, where I kept thinking to myself, if Jesus were walking the earth, this is what it would feel like to walk alongside of him. And he said, the day I spent with Vaughn was the closest thing I've ever experienced to walking with Jesus. No idea how blessed I was to be able to have that experience. And it would have been very easy to say no to that because it was outside of my comfort zone. It was certainly outside of my folks' comfort zone. So their faith and their trust to let me go and changed my life. I mean, I've been doing Mexico ministry and ministry in places ever since. Because you go down there and you think, man, this place is four or five hours from where I live, which was Santa Barbara, which, talk about a contrast, you know. And here's people in need, and the needs are so simple. These needs are things that can be fulfilled and met. And to see the love of the children, to see the love of poor families that give you everything that they have to feed you when it's probably the only meal they're going to eat the whole week. I mean, just God opens your eyes. But, you know, God does stuff when we go places that don't make sense and when we go places that we don't normally go. Most of us draw a box, and we say, okay, God, this is, this is what I'm comfortable with. You know, please work within this box. Go for it. And God's like, I'm doing all sorts of stuff, but I'm sorry. It's the stuff that I'm doing is outside of your box. And if you're willing to venture outside of that box, you're going to have the right of your life. But if you're going to live inside of that cozy, secure, comfortable non-sacrificial box, life's going to be pretty boring and pretty bland. It's when you get outside of the box that you see stuff. A few points of application before we leave the text. Do you notice at the end that when the story is done, they leave everything and follow Jesus? Imagine you're a trader on the New York Stock Exchange, and you make a trade, and you get more money than you've ever received in your life, and you just walk away from it. I mean, this wasn't a hobby again. This is two boats full of fish. This was their livelihood. 
And it doesn't say they cleaned it. It doesn't say they told the servants or the other family. To, it says they just walked away from it because they had met Jesus. I love what Peter says, you know, because, this doesn't make any sense, but because you say so, I'll do it. It's like what Jesus' mother Mary says to the servants at Cana before the, the, we, the wedding where Jesus turns the water to wine. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. You know? It's amazing what happens when we do whatever God tells us to do. It's also amazing in this story that in the midst of this miraculous, amazing miracle, what does Peter do? He recognizes his own sinfulness. In the midst of this glorious, amazing event, he goes, get away from me. It's like what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am a sinful man, and I live among a people of, with unclean lips, a sinful people. You know, when you're in the presence of the divine, it should remind you of your brokenness and your, your need for a Savior, your, your, your sinfulness, yeah. And we see that in this story. It's interesting, too, that in this story, the nets break. But if you want to have some fun this week, read John chapter 21 after Jesus is resurrected. Same thing. They catch a lot of fish, but the nets don't break. What do the nets represent? What do you think they're trying to have some fun with that this week? And I love what Jesus says at the end of our passage. Like, this is amazing, this is, yeah, a great miracle that I did, but here's, here's your takeaway. From now on, it's not about fish. From now on, you're going to be fishing for people. Which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 21 when he recommissions Peter. Peter has denied the Lord, he's feeling shameful, he goes back to his old way of life. And Jesus comes to him and says three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Each time, he says, then feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Because you know what? When I first called you, it started with fish, but it soon became about people. You've gone back to fish. It's really about people. Fish is a way to earn a living, but the people are where it's at. That's what the ministry is all about. Let's pray.